Welcome to the Baptist Broadcast. If you guys are listening via anchor.fm, thank you for tuning in. If you are watching the YouTube channel and, and seeing this on YouTube, please don't forget to smash that subscribe button and click the bell for continued notifications. Thank you for your support and listener subscription. Hey, what I want to do is I want to do what I've what I've tried to do at least a, a little bit in a recent article. I I, I wrote it last night and, and published it this morning. Um, and and what I try to do there, and I and I don't take the liberty of of doing it um, in a, any sort of exhaustive or sufficient manner by any means. So I understand there's some there's some shortfall there. But but what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to make the link between God as actus purus or pure actuality, and uh, the infallibility of the scriptures and our warrant for believing the scriptures. And what I want to do here is I want to I want to bring out some historical source material that shows that that is the basis the the character and nature of God is the basis of uh, of the of the authority of the scriptures the perfection of the scriptures um, it is the basis for the warrant for our belief or the explanation for why we ought to believe the scriptures and then I want to move from that and show how. Uh, recent denials of God as actus purus, as pure actuality, actually, and 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 these denials, by the way, are happening at the hands of men who will quickly run to a profession and confession of the scriptures as infallible and inerrant. They are theological conservatives, but I want to show how their denial, their outright denial of God as actus purus in some misled effort to get away from anything Aristotelian sounding, actually folds back on them in terms of their profession of the integrity of the scriptures. In other words, you cannot consistently deny actus purus out of one side of your mouth and affirm the integrity of the scriptures and our warrant for believing those scriptures out of the other. So I want to begin first by looking at the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, uh, the first chapter and the fourth article or fourth paragraph, and it says there, the authority of the Holy Scripture for which it ought to be believed. Okay, so let's just pause there for a second. The authority of the Holy Scripture, which we will see in a moment that by that they mean the authority behind the Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed. In other words, this authority is the warrant. This, this, let's say, natural authority to God. God is naturally authoritative. He cannot be otherwise because he is God. He is that which is, uh, he is, he is that than which nothing greater can be conceived, to, to use the language of Anselm. So the authority of the Holy Scripture for which it ought to be believed dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself. And, and that is, a, that is a, uh, an allusion to divine simplicity. They are collapsing, as it were, to use that language positively, God's essence and the perfection of truth itself. They depend wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof. Therefore, it is to be received because it is the word of God. So the integrity of the Holy Scripture is grounded in who God is, naturally, by nature, essentially. 
Let me read you some other other sources. I'm going to go to to uh, uh, Francis Turretin here. I've got him in in hard copy here, Volume One of the Atlantic Institutes Institutes of Atlantic Theology. And what I want to read is the fourth question. Uh, the fourth question in the first volume, and just the first line of Article One. He says this. He says the order the, the authority of the scriptures, which we have just discussed, depends on their origin. Who is the or or what is the origin of the Holy Scriptures? Well, it's God, as we've just seen in the Second London Confession. There's a, a great deal of continuity in Catholicity among these thinkers in the 16th or in the 17th century. Believe it or not, unfortunately, we don't have the same kind of continuity in Catholicity today. But but it doesn't matter because we we can we can all get together and 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 form parachurch ministries and and whatnot. Let me read you one more from William Ames. Therefore, the authority of God is the proper and immediate ground of all truth in this manner to be believed. Whence is that solemn speech of the prophets everywhere? The word of the Lord, thus saith the Lord. The word of God is grounded in the character and nature of God. So, when... Sorry. Um, when, uh, when someone denies God as actus purus... Let, let me first let me first um, let me first define or kind of summarize uh, the idea behind actus purus. What is actus purus? What is pure actuality? Aristotle systematizes uh, these concepts, but he doesn't invent them. He's just putting words to reality. That's all he's doing. All right. So so if you're if you're committing the genetic fallacy of of saying, well, Aristotle said this, therefore therefore bad. You're going to end up in a heap of trouble because what you're going to end up doing is, is in denying Aristotle, you're going to throw out the truth that he actually spoke about. What Aristotle does is he just puts words to reality. I'm not saying that Aristotle wasn't wrong in other areas. He most certainly was. And guess who points that out in a most brilliant manner is Thomas Aquinas. Aristotle talks about actuality and potentiality. This is... Actuality and potentiality really is the substrata composing all contingent things. All contingent things, all created articles or items are an admixture of actuality and potentiality. Now, what's actuality? Um, this phone that I have here in my hand, the phone itself is actual. It is in being, right? It exists. Um, another way that it's actual is that it's actually in my hand. It has the potential at this point uh, to be out of my hand. I can drop it, and and that potential has now been actualized. That's just a, an easy way to 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 kind of illustrate uh, actuality and potentiality. Something is actual in as much or in as far as it exists, and its potential insofar as it can change to be this or that, okay? What is denied in uh, Reformed scholasticism and the medieval scholasticism prior to them is that there is any potentiality in God. There is no potential in God to be other than he is. And for that reason, because, because potentiality in God is remoted from him, it's removed from him by the way of negation via negativa, um, God is said to be 
actus purus or pure actuality. There is no potentiality in him. He is pure being. He is. When we say God is, when we use the name um, Yahweh and we, and we think of Exodus 3, right? I am that I am. This, this great statement of aseity and, and self-existence, right? All of that is synonymous with this idea of actus purus. There is no potential in God for God to be other than he is. If there were potential, in, let, let me show you how this connects to a very popular attribute of God that, that, that everyone, that, that many well-read Christians know and, and profess. If there is potential in God for him to be other than he is, then it follows he is mutable, not immutable. He is able to change. That is, he is able to become that which he is presently not. That's what it would mean to put potentiality in God. And there is, in an effort to get away from bad man Aristotle, um, since he was a pagan, uh, actus purus in God has been denied. Uh, one writer um, has, has simply stated, actus purus is not the God of the Bible while at the same time affirming divine simplicity and divine immutability, and somehow also ascribing change to be within God as well, an eternal and perpetual motion in the divine essence, in God ad intra. Now, how do we link this to the, the authority of Scripture, the integrity of Scripture, the perfection of Scripture? The infallibility of Scripture and the inerrancy of Scripture, which were two of the largest items during the conservative resurgence of, uh, you know, from the 50s onward, even until present day. Present day, the infallibility and inerrancy of the Scripture figure heavily into into contemporary conservative evangelical uh, theology, as it should. But what causes the infallibility of the Scriptures? According to... Uh, according to those who have come before us, the framers of the Second London, the framers of Westminster Confession, framers uh, William Ames, uh, Francis Turton, and a host of other authors that you could bring up at this point, have clearly grounded the Scriptures and everything the Scriptures are in the character and nature of God. Now, if Scripture is infallible, then God must be purely actual. And the way I make that connection is very, very basic, and it's easy to understand. If God has the potential to be other than he is, it follows that he has the potential to change what he has already inspired his word to say. Or he has the potential to change his mind concerning what the scriptures say. He has the potential to suspend his promises, to renege, to actually repent in and of himself, and to totally undercut what he has promised in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you give God potential, if you put the imperfection of potential in the divine essence, that's where you're at. And you say, well, no, God would never do that because God is faithful. What's your reason for believing that? 
Because if there's potential in God, then God has the potentiality to be unfaithful. So what is your essential, what is the, what is the essential reason grounding your belief that God is faithful? You know, one of the biggest problems with, with mainstream evangelicalism today and Christianity at large is just the inability to make causal connections, the inability to, to think logically about these issues. And the fact of the matter is, is if you reject the concept that, that Aristotle wrote about, Actus Puris, which was carried on throughout early church history, it was absorbed into the language of the Reformers and the post-Reformed, and it exists today as a, 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 a orthodox assumption about who God is. If you reject that, if you jettison that from your theology altogether, you are in a world of trouble. You are in, you are in a clown show. <laughs> You're in a clown show because there's no way you can make rational sense of anything that you say you believe. You just, you just have to believe it. And when someone asks you for the ground for that belief, the reason you believe that, the sufficient explanation for why you believe that is what it'll come down to. A shrug of the shoulders. I don't know. This is what it'll come down to. A pure fideism. Because you can't give an explanation, you can't give a ground for why you would believe the scriptures are infallible if indeed there is potentiality in God to be other than the scriptures say he is. Anyway, I hope this was a helpful connection that was made. And um, and uh, please, again, if this was helpful, please uh, you know, give me the, the thumbs up there on YouTube. Uh, share the podcast around. And again, don't forget to click the subscribe button down there and the bell for continued notifications. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful rest of your day.